Good afternoon to all of our fellow health enthusiasts. My name is Aubrey Mast and I'm a professor of nutrition. This is a new podcast developed by my friend and colleague, Dr. Charles Benz, and we call this show Healing Trends with Dr. Benz. We search the internet every day to find the best scientific studies that can be used to improve the health of every interested person. You will not see many of these studies in conventional media because most doctors do not have the time or the interest in finding them. There are also special interests which are less than enthusiastic about you knowing about the studies. Every week we will explore nutritional science that has the potential to prevent and even reverse 90% of chronic illness. This could save many lives and help to stop the healthcare crisis that will eventually bankrupt our country. This is frequently called functional medicine and it has been adopted by thousands of doctors as well as medical schools and hospitals, including the Cleveland Clinic. Today's program is entitled The Secrets of Healthy Weight Control. Hello, Dr. Benz. Good, good. How are you today? Doing well, thank you. I know I don't have to worry about you and your family about overeating. Uh, I don't think mine either, but I know there's a lot of families and a lot of people out there who are thinking this is the time for celebration and um, they're going to eat, eat, eat and don't worry about the scale or the weight and then in the new year they're going to make a new year's resolution uh, to try to lose that weight. And uh, as we know from our previous studies, about 97% of people who try to lose weight fail and eventually end up gaining all the weight back that, they, that they've lost. And so that seems to be a cycle that just can't be broken. I mean, we've got about 70% of the population now that's overweight. And, you know, all the, a lot of the studies are now saying that uh, people that are overweight uh, are more prone to have chronic illness because they have more inflammation in their body. Now they're saying that a, a pretty large majority of people who have had COVID or have died have been overweight. So the overweight thing gets to be a little bit more serious every day. And uh, I just thought we should have a program at the beginning of the new year that kind of talks about this and, and, and gives a, people a little bit more in-depth understanding of why it's so difficult to lose weight and keep it off. And I know this has been a topic for your students too, so what, what's been the main things that you've concentrated on to get people to lose weight and keep it off? Well, I think that requires us to change the way we think about weight loss for most individuals, when we think about weight loss, we think about going to the gym in order to lose the 15 pounds, the 20 pounds, the 50 pounds. And we don't think about weight loss in terms of weight maintenance or in terms of lifestyle changes. And just like we don't accumulate weight overnight, we're not gonna lose weight overnight. So I think the conversation always for me is not necessarily about losing weight, it's about how do we maintain the loss of weight by changing our lifestyle habits, which means we have to look at what we're eating, but it also means that we have to look at how we're sleeping, what pharmaceuticals we're taking, what our stress levels are, um, you know, how much we're moving our body, what kind of vitamin D or sun exposure we're getting. There's so many different components of lifestyle medicine that are pertinent to weight loss that I think we have to shift that conversation away from just, oh, I will eat less calories and therefore I will lose weight. Right. Well, one of the things that I did a few years ago is uh, I, I dug a, a little bit deeper into this topic and I came up with four categories 
that uh, people did an evaluation on each of these four categories to find out where this problem was actually coming from. So in digging down, I found out the first category was eating patterns. And so uh, were they eating frequently enough? Uh, were they uh, eating too quickly? Were they not chewing their food properly? Uh, were they eating the wrong kinds of food? W were they really paying attention to their metabolism because everybody's a little bit different? So we had an evaluation tool that actually looked at these, these different uh, eating patterns to see whether that was one of the big factors. The second one was brain chemistry because I, I think we both know that it's really hard to have um, something going on in your brain that's addictive. And, and if you don't have a balanced brain, which means you need enough B vitamins and amino acids to make neurotransmitters and to keep the neurotransmitters ha happy. And so we had another evaluation tool that just looked at brain chemistry and to, to see if people, if that was one of the problems that people had. And then the third one was emotional factors. I can't tell you how many people are suppressing problems and have stress and other things going on in their life or previously in their life that they really don't think about that much because they want to bury those issues. But there's a lot of self-esteem and a lot of other issues like that. And so we had another evaluation tool that looked at these emotional factors. And the fourth one was situational factors. In other words, people who live alone, they have a more difficult time than people who are living in a family or even, even two people in a family. And if they travel and, and there's lots of different situations that people get into that might also be a factor. So we had an in-depth evaluation of, of that. And then people could look at these four categories and go, oh my goodness, look at this. The evaluation clearly points out that my main thing that I have to concentrate on is brain chemistry, or the main thing is. And so we at least give them an idea of what the priorities are for them. So it becomes more personalized. So what do you think about that approach? Is that something that you think is is worth looking into for almost everybody? Or, or do some people just always want the quick and easy way to do things? Well, I mean, I think we are a culture of quick and easy. So that is really why the diet industry has made millions off of people trying to lose weight quickly. And I think the tool that you're suggesting is way more valuable in the sense that you have a greater sense of efficacy of what is my role within my own health, but what is my role within the weight that I have? Um, and I think anytime that we can return power back to an individual where they can see, oh, there is an emotional component to why I eat the way that I eat, or there is a stress component, or there is a lack of access component, that those are tools and precursors to helping people become empowered to making lifestyle changes. You know what? And from the discussions that you and I have had, I think that uh, I'm ready to upgrade this tool a little bit and, and talk about the microbiome uh, because I think the microbiome might be a factor all in itself. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have a healthy gut, it's kind of like if you don't have a healthy gut, you can't have a healthy brain <laughs> because we know that 70 or 80% of serotonin is made in the gut. 
And so you've inspired me to kind of change this model. I mean, it, it worked well before, better than other programs have. Uh, and in fact, for the one big national program that we had, we had a hundred percent success rate. Now, the, the 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 thing of it was, I had a I had a readiness evaluation tool to see whether people were really ready to dig down and do the work and, and the research that was necessary. And a lot of people weren't ready to do that. And I think that's why a lot of people fail. But in the end, some magical information came out. And one of them was that uh, if your target is to lose weight and lose it fast and lose a lot, you're probably going to fail. And here's, here's why that is. The, the body has a defense mechanism. And in this defense mechanism, if you weigh 150 pounds and you want to lose 30 or 40 pounds, um, we take 150 times 10, and that gives us 1,500 calories as the goal for that person to maintain their weight. If they want to lose weight, then they have to lose only 10% of that. In other words, they have to cut by 150 calories a day. If they cut by more than that, then the body says, wait a minute, you're trying to do something that I don't like. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to store more of the food that you give me and I'm going to I'm going to create a craving for additional things because you're making it difficult for me to maintain what they have decided, what the body has decided is like the ideal weight. All right. And so I don't know whether a lot of people know this or not, but that's the, that's one of the magic tools that we came up with. Never try to lose more than 10% of your ideal calories in any given period, like a week or two or three. And then people say, oh, well, I plateaued. Uh, I, I couldn't lose any more weight. That's because the body needs time to adjust to this new set point. And then they can go on and you can go, okay, I lost that now. I'm down to 140 pounds. So now my goal is uh, 1,400 calories and I have to try to lose only 140 calories uh, at each at each day for each day. What do you think about that? Is that if you had anything close to that approximated in in your evaluation of people and, and, and their weight? Absolutely. I think this is why when we talk about weight, we have to talk about it happening very slowly. And it's like, you know, I have a lot of clients um, and students that are very intrigued with the keto diet because the keto diet suggests that you can lose massive amounts of weight very quickly. And it's not sustainable. This is what we see with yo-yo dieting as well, is that you trick the body and the body goes into starvation mode and then all of a sudden you are gaining weight or you're holding weight rather than continuously losing weight. And I think at that point in time, it's really important and helpful to have people start tracking their macronutrients. So what is it that I'm consuming? How much of everything is it that I'm consuming? I have clients and students, you know, if they're making a sandwich, track down to the tablespoon and the teaspoon of um, condiments that they're putting on their salads or on their sandwiches. The same thing with the fluids that they're consuming, because then we can start to see a different perspective of, oh, I'm eating 100 more grams of protein than I should be eating and I'm not losing weight because I'm also not eating enough fruits and vegetables or I'm not getting enough fiber in my diet. 
I think we have to keep giving people more and more tools to help them feel empowered um, and recognize that just like we don't put weight on overnight, it is a long-term process to going towards weight maintenance. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I think the other, when we dug down into these tools, uh, we found out that in terms of metabolism, the, um, the amount of uh, carbohydrates and protein and fats that you should eat completely varies based on where there's five different categories of, of metabolism. But let's just compare the fast and the slow metabolizers. The fast metabolizers can eat completely differently than the slow metabolizers. And so there's actually a test that you can do uh, in your doctor's office with 10 different factors. Uh, but one of the simple things that we do is we, we just measure how long food goes through your body. And so if it goes through your body in 12 to 15 hours, then you're a fast metabolizer. If it takes you 15 to 20 hours or more for food to go through your body, then you're a slow metabolizer. And <laughs> I think that people would always say to me, well, how do you know? I, I said, well, you know, if you eat beets or corn, you'll know when it comes out. <laughs> All you have to do is watch for it. And so we use that to determine whether somebody's a fast or a slow metabolizer. And then if you're a, a, a fast metabolizer, you can, you can eat more of certain foods like, like proteins and, uh, and, 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 and good healthy vegetables and you know, uh, carbohydrates. So we would maybe go 60, 20, 20 uh, as, as far as uh, uh, carbohydrates and protein and, uh, and fats. And, and then if you were a slow metabolizer, uh, we, we would want to change that ratio completely so that you were getting less of these carbohydrates and, and maybe more protein, um, but less fats. And so we, we, we know that's a factor. We know that chewing is a factor because up to 50% of the nutrients can be lost if you don't chew your food properly. And if you don't have quality food, then your cells are, that's the first craving that's gonna happen, is if, if, if you're not eating quality foods, all your cells in your body are going, excuse me, we need more nutrients. And that's when they'll start the cravings. So when people say, well, yeah, there's cravings for ma magnesium and there's cravings for different things, the first, the first craving comes about if you don't eat healthy foods. And so we've, you and I have stressed that for a long time, and I'm going to tell you that the thing that did it for our family was Ingrid, my wife, uh, did the keto diet. And she knew she couldn't do it forever and ever, but she gained and kept off more weight in the last six months than she had in any other six-month period in her life. And now she's able to get the more of a, a plant-based Mediterranean diet going on there, but still intermittent fasting worked for her. So she ate all of her food within an eight-hour period. And the rest of the time, she didn't feel that she was hungry at all because she was eating quality foods. In my case, it was snacks. I was a snackaholic. And so I would eat three meals and I would eat three snacks, nice, healthy snacks, but <laughs> steady. And when I stopped the snacks, the weight came off. Whenever she ate within that eight hour period, her weight came off. And it was keto, but it was really a healthy keto. 
and, and, and maybe you can talk about that too, because there is a way that you can keep the keto diet from being a lot of protein, a lot of fat. You can do a lot of vegetables and other things in there as well. So what do you think about that approach? This is giving people some, what do you say, hot tips on, on, on and how to get started and how to maintain something good. And so those were some of the areas that I, I came up with. Yeah, I think the keto diet was developed for people that are suffering from epilepsy. And the science really shows that from a neurological standpoint, it can be very helpful for mitigating neurological symptomologies related to epilepsy. I am not a proponent of using the keto diet for most individuals, especially individuals that are maintaining that type of diet long term. And you're right. There's a way to I mean, it's just like every other diet, right? There's a way to be a bad vegetarian and there's a way to be a good vegetarian and there's a bad and there's a way to be a bad keto um, participant and a good keto participant. Um, you know, snacking on meat and cheese all day long with no fiber and no vegetables really not the greatest health choice for anybody to make. And so I think it's all knowledge of getting to that place. And what you shared with Ingrid, I think is really important is that figuring out where is your window. So for eight hours, if she ate within that eight hour range, she felt great and she was able to still lose weight. It's eating past that where we start to see that like that may not be helpful for a lot of individuals. And so intermittent fasting, I'm a huge proponent of it, but I think the key that you're getting at is about intuitive eating and figuring out what feels right for your body type, which means you have to do some, you know, experimentation. Um, and that can be challenging because we're bombarded by all of the fads around dieting that are promising quick fixes or quick weight loss, but they're also really undermining an intuitive connection to feeling better in your body and making it more sustainable. Right. And I, I know that uh, a lot of people aren't ready to, to dig in to these issues as deeply as we are, but I think if we don't share this kind of information, we don't give them any kind of insights into what might be uh, the problem. So I have a list of 20 things that, that have been known to contribute to weight gain. And uh, I'm just going to mention them like three or four at a time. And then you can let me know what you think of each one of them. Exercise. I mean, th people think by exercising, they're going to burn calories and that's going to make the difference. That's, you, you would be amazed, I think, it, and when you looked at the science to see that it's not the aerobic exercise that's the key. It's actually the weight-bearing exercise that's the key. Because with the weight-bearing exercise, if you can lose some fat cells, or at least shrink the fat cells, and grow some muscle cells, then that muscle will burn calories 400% more efficiently than a fat cell will. And so we know we never get rid of fat cells. We know they're there forever, but we can shrink them. And once we shrink them, and then we make room for muscle cells to kind of grow and prosper, then all of a sudden, you're changing your, your metabolism. And when you're resting, now you're burning calories 400% more and faster than when you were sitting otherwise. What's your thinking on exercise? And the other thing that goes with that is this cultural thing. You know, there's a lot of people come from different cultures from around the world where food tradition is kind of embedded in their, in their family history. 
And I can't tell you how many people that I've worked with that have said, you know, right, white rice is <laughs> what, we, what we live for. It's, it's our staple. And I just had to say, you know, if you've got to eat rice, you have to have a whole green rice with some fiber in it because that'll be a small sacrifice to make for you to get that fiber and to make sure that you're having a healthy green that's actually gonna be used by your body efficiently. So let's lump those two together, exercise and, and cultural traditions. What's, what's been your experience with that? Well, I think that we can go back to the blue zones. And if you look at blue zones, there's not this premise of needing to exercise because the whole culture is based upon movement. And so I think that's where we've got it really wrong in the United States where we're like, oh, well, I have to carve out a, an hour worth of time to go to the gym. What about we challenge ourselves to think about movement rather than exercise? So when I am cleaning my house, I am moving. When I am dancing in the kitchen, I am moving. When I'm walking around my neighborhood, I am moving. All those things help to stimulate our heart rate variability, um, help us burn calories, but they're not necessarily so daunting and they can also become part of our cultural application to moving our bodies more. We've become very sedentary and we think that that's a cultural norm and it's not. And especially if we look at other cultures that do not have the weight gain um, and the obesity, the type two diabetes and the cardiovascular disease that we see as typical Americans in 70 to 80% of our population. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, the, the, the other, there's a couple other things here that, that are factors. Uh, we talked about stress a little bit. Uh, we can maybe talk a little bit more about that. Uh, also genetics, um, you know, there's some, there's some cultures that have genetic implications for, uh, how they process things and there's time pressures. I mean, how many people today have to run from one place to another, uh, grabbing food where they can. And when you say to people, you know, it takes about 10 minutes to make a healthy sandwich or a healthy snack to take home or take to work with you. It's not that hard. Uh, maybe more people working at home, which happened because of COVID, will be a good thing. Maybe it'll be a bad thing. But I'd like to, I'd like to see what you feel about it because time pressures are still going to apply to a lot of people uh, because, uh, you know, salaries are are not as high as a lot of people would like them to be. And so they have to have, uh, if they have a the family, they have two people have to work. And then maybe the kids don't get fed the way they should. And we've talked about that before. So time pressures and stress. Um, what, are, what are some tips that you give people for, for those kinds of issues? I think it's all about prioritization. You know, and I work with a lot of clients on this, that they're able to prioritize um, answering the emails before they get out of bed. They're able to prioritize running from meeting to meeting, but they're not willing or able to prioritize themselves. And I think when we talk about weight loss and we also talk about lifestyle changes, we have to start really prioritizing that our value comes from how well we are capable of taking care of ourselves. And so with working at home, it's very easy to be like, oh, I have to sit in front of the computer all day long. Well, we can also schedule in five to 10 minute breaks where we're getting up and we're moving our body. We're making sure that we have reminders going off to drink more water or that we're going outside so that we have vitamin D exposure. Um, I think it is a cultural shift on that you and your health have priority 
And in that priority, it helps you become a better employee. It helps you become a better person. It helps you become a better parent. But that requires an individual to really prioritize themselves above the to-do list. Yeah, I mean, um, and, and, and these are these are other issues that are that's kind of follow on to that that there there there's implications here they're not for everybody but at least people have to think about them and go oh my god this might be something that i have to deal with in other words prescription drugs some prescription drugs actually uh, contribute to to weight gain uh, antihistamines are are a good example and so there's there's not adequate warnings on these uh, on on these drugs to let people know this could possibly be a factor in your weight gain. And so that's one thing. Allergies are another thing. There's been whole books written about the fact that allergies can contribute to uh, gaining weight. And and toxins. Uh, when you have toxins in your body, guess what? One of the defense mechanisms is the body will encapsulate that toxin with some fat in order to protect it from getting into your cells. It's amazing what the body has as defense mechanism. But we know that when people go on a detoxification program, they lose weight because now a lot of that, those toxins are being pulled out of the body. And guess what? They're pulling out the, 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 the fat cells with it. And so these are all factors that, that kind of contribute. Have you run into this or have you had any patients or students that have mentioned these things, the toxicity, the allergens, and the prescription drugs at all? Absolutely, because I think there's consequences to all of those factors. Um, and a lot of them, a lot of times those are hidden culprits that we go, oh, I can't lose weight and we change our diet rather than treating the um, root cause of the weight. Gain. And so that's where, you know, having a lot of tests done or working with a functional medicine practitioner can be really helpful so that you're able to get to what is the root cause that can be contributing to the weight gain. Yeah, because you can do all the basic things that we talked about early in the program and still have the problem and figure out what and, and not be able to figure out what it is. So you're right. Good testing is the key. And unfortunately, a lot of the conventional doctors just don't understand this enough. And so we really need better education by doctors to understand the, these factors in weight gain. And so you really need to work a little bit harder probably to find a doctor, a functional medicine doctor or a naturopathic doctor that really understands the connection between all these factors. The final ones on this list are, are like digestive issues, uh, hormone imbalance, and thyroid problems, all three of which can contribute to metabolism and, and weight gain. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, in, in, in the case of women, a lot of the women that I've known over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, when they get to menopause and beyond, they start to gain weight around the hips. And uh, they, they start to say, wait a minute, I didn't change my diet. I still exercise exactly the same way as I did before. Why am I gaining weight around my hips? And so that's when I tried to explain to them that when the body is in, in, in its kind of hormonal balance, state of hormonal balance, then if it needs more estrogen, guess what? It will lay on some fat around that area as, because that fat will help to make estrogen. And so this is another one of those hidden culprits 
that, that, that you mentioned. So how about those three, thyroid, hormone, and digestive issues? What were some of the, what were, are some of the things that will help people to get balanced in those areas? Well, I mean, there's always the role of supplements, but I think the first thing is, is you have to understand and know if that's where your body's coming out of allostasis or alignment. And that is really where you're going to have to work with a practitioner. Um, you can definitely, you know, uh, gather information by doing food diaries and uh, emotion and lifestyle journals, but ultimately checking digestive function and hormonal balances is going to come from having some form of an intervention happening. Well, and, and the whole brain chemistry thing, we, we have a whole program on brain chemistry and the body, the body needs five types of nutrients in order to have the brain work in, in the way that it should. It needs glucose, it needs essential fats, it needs phospholipids, it needs amino acids, and it needs nutrients like vitamins and minerals. And so we have a scale, uh, a, a survey that we do to see whether people are eating according to their brain health. And so that's also something that if, if you're not eating according to your brain health, then you can't possibly get this done. I mean, it's an impossibility to lose this weight. So uh, I'm gonna try to work on this microbiome one because they, I think we need a special evaluation tool for that as well. But I think that we've given people some really good insights into the kind of things that they can think about uh, that they might not have thought about before in terms of reevaluating their, their weight maintenance program, as you mentioned it, in the new year. And uh, I hope that they take to heart uh, these ideas and uh, if they have to listen to the program again to remember all the things, that's fine. If they took notes, that's good too. Um, but I think it's just, it's here for your use. And, uh, this was the time that we had to do it. And, uh, with, uh, no further ado, I'll, I'll get a few words in there about our sponsors and we can wrap it up for today. Um, the first sponsor is MPB health. MPB health is a medical cost sharing company. And the reason that's different than insurance is that it doesn't sort of guarantee that you'll be able to uh, get a, a set rate, although the rates that do start off are usually less, they're like 30 to 50% uh, less than insurance. But the reason that is, is that they promote wellness, they promote health. And so all the people who join, who are members of, of the organization, they pay according to how much health expense they have to absorb. Whereas the insurance companies bill you as if you were going to become ill. <laughs> and then if you use it, fine. And if you don't, okay, uh, then you're subsidizing other people. So the medical cost sharing group just says, uh, MPB Health just says, look, we're gonna keep this at a, at a basic level, 30 to 50% less than insurance. But you better stay healthy because if any of you become less healthy because you're not paying attention to our health and wellness programs, then you're going to contribute to the increased cost that everybody has to share. So that's, that's one of the big differences. The second company is um, uh, DHA Labs. DHA Labs is a very progressive and advanced wellness uh, company. I call them a wellness company because their tests are trying to find chronic illness before it starts. 
all right, five to 10 years beforehand. And we know that the cells are making changes very early in the, in the cellular deterioration process. And if you can find them early enough with the right tests, 99% of illness can be prevented and treated effectively. And so DHA Labs is in Chicago and you can go online, you can look at their programs and their, and their tests that they do. You can call them and get a consultation to, to find out which tests might be right for you. It's good for individuals, uh, especially uh, self-employed individuals and small working groups, but big companies have used them as well. The third one is SunTrust Financial Planning. SunTrust Financial Planning has been a client of mine for about 15 or 20 years. And they also look at financial planning a little bit differently than other financial planning companies. They say, if, if you're not healthy, you really can't enjoy the wealth that you accumulate. And so they can give you good financial advice, but they want to give you good health advice too. And that's what I really like about Southern Trust Financial is that they give people both. And I think that's why they're one of the more successful companies uh, in the financial planning area. And the third, or the fourth and final sponsor is Paddock Pools. Paddock Pools has something very unique. They have a vacuum extractor that actually takes the chlorine gas off the surface of the pool so that people can breathe better water, better air with more oxygen in it. And this is really important because if you breathe that chlorinated air, uh, then you're going to end up getting zinc deficiencies and probably deficiencies in vitamin D3, which can cause cancer. And so swimming is a great exercise, but I would prefer to be in a pool that has one of the paddock pools uh, uh, vacuum extractors on it. And so if you have a pool project in your community, uh, try to learn more about it and make sure your committee learns more about it. If you can find one in your community, swim there because it's going to be a healthier swim for you. So those are our sponsors. We really appreciate everything they do to uh, keep us uh, on the air and uh, able to give out the information that we have and help as many people as we're able to help. And I'd just like to thank Aubrey again for her program uh, advice today. It's always sage and wonderful. We'll see you all, all down the road. Thanks, Aubrey.